It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, my guest is Dr. Stephen Barden, founder and CEO of Stephen Barden Coaching. Stephen is a specialist in organizational leadership and strategy. He works with board level leaders to help them and their successors develop and initiate strategies that benefit and sustain the entire organization. His practices work with clients in Europe, the US, UK, and Africa. He's the past chief executive of News Digital Systems, Axel Springer Television, and Quadrica, and has been chief operating officer of B Sky B and managing editor of TV AM. As an entrepreneur, he has founded businesses in the media, technology, and communication sectors and holds a doctorate from Middlesex University for his research into how top organizational leaders learn to use power and authority. Stephen is the author of the book, How Successful Leaders Do Business with Their World, The Navigational Stance, which details his work on the exercise of leaders' power and authority and forms the foundation for his coaching practice. He was born in Tanzania, went to school in South Africa, worked in the UK, and now spends his time between Berlin and the south of France. Stephen Barden, welcome into the corner office. Thank you, Brent. It's so great to talk to you again. We just were catching up just before the pod started. Got some good background about what's going on, and, and we're kind of follow a little bit of a different format today. So, you know, dear listeners, thank you for tuning in. You're going to hear something a little bit different towards, towards the end of this podcast today that we normally do. Super excited about that because we've just got such an amazing leader who's done it all. Three, four CEO positions. Stephen, how many? I, I lost count when I was going through your Well, no, no pressure there. I think I've, I've had, I think I have four, four CEO. Four, that's right. <laughs> four, oh, good. Four, I'm glad four. I didn't understate it by too much. But don't, uh, don't, at any rate, don't really play it there because, you know, then they'll, 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 they'll leave disappointed. <laughs> well, we'll hear all about that in the pod. But first, we want to talk about kind of where it all began. And uh, as people already have guessed from your accent, obviously, you're not a Native American. In fact, I'm sitting in France at the moment. You are either in Berlin or on your way to France. So tell me where you are today. I'm, I'm in Berlin and on my way to France in next week, in fact. That's what I thought. And had we not been leaving for the U.S. in a couple of days, we would have done this together in France. It would have been a lot of fun. We'll save that for our follow-up. But you didn't grow up in either of those countries. You obviously nope. have a bit of a British you know, tint to that uh, accent. So tell us about your early years, where you grew up, and what your early family life was like. Well, I didn't grow up in Britain either, funnily enough. I grew up, ah! I grew up in, well, in, in, in what was then Tanganyika, which was a sort of British protectorate. Just call it a colony, in fact. 
um, and, and it then became Tanzania. And so I spent my the first the first thirteen years of my life there, which was wow. just idyllic. It was it was wonderful. And then my parents uh, decided to send me to South Africa, uh, where I uh, I finished off schooling and and went to university. I trained as a lawyer. I never I never practiced because I I disliked it intensely. But my my father had this very liberal idea. Remember, at my age, you know, there was very little choice of what you were supposed to do. So my father said to me, "You can do anything you like. You can either be a lawyer or a doctor." Or even a doctor or a lawyer, but that's what you're going to do. So, so I thought, what do I know about doctorate? I have to ask a question. I have to ask a question of clarification. When you saw, talked about the idyllic Tanzania, and I want to hear more about that. Gosh, most beautiful parks in the world. I'm sure you said. It. And as a 13 year old, gosh, you grew up that local culture. Must have been amazing. But the phrase "I was sent to South Africa for school." Kind of sounded yeah. a little bit like there was some a little resentment, a little <laughs> resentment hanging in there. Wait, tell us a little bit about that. Wait, well, was it boarding you know, school? My, Is that what you went away to? My my parents, my you know, we we'd had uh, independence, uh, liberation by that stage. So so the there was a, a a non-colonial government. There was an independent government, and it was a republic by then. And of course, you know, everything went went multiracial um, as it as it should have done. And my parents thought. Mm, they were a typical colonial. Let's not mince two products. words, many words about it. Products of the colonial era. Products yeah. of the colonial and, era. And they were, they were, they were, they were fairly racist. Bless them, bless them, because I love them. But they were racist. Yeah, they, they knew um, no difference. So they sent me off to South Africa, which was in in the depths of racism. Of I mean, it really was. I, I, you know, I once compared going from Tanzania to to where I was sent initially to South Africa from going to New York City to Alabama in the 60s. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or, was, or, to, or 2023, believe me. Or 2023. A lot of differences still exist. Precisely, yeah. <laughs> no no was, offense to my friends in Alabama, and I have plenty of them clients there too. But it is, you're not going to do my best, some of my best, friend, best friends from Alabama. So how many years in South Africa? So that was boarding school, right? So you just basically went to junior high, went to boarding school, three, four and years. Then I went, there, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I went to no, I went to start a boarding school in in uh, in Tanzania because there was only one one big school, if you like, a secondary school in Tanzania. And then I sent to boarding school. I went first and stayed for a year with godparents in a mining town, which literally was you know like like Alabama, and then went to Stellenbosch in the Cape. Which was oh a gosh. very beautiful part of the world, really beautiful part of the world. But again, it was it was massively uh, racist. It was run. It was the school. Funny enough, was where uh, you know prime ministers and politicians of the then apartheid nationalist government sent there. Uh, came from, came from. Mm-hmm. And, so you rubbed shoulders um, with some. You rubbed shoulders with some political bigwigs and some some rich folk from around the world. I, I presume. Yeah. I, I, uh, yeah. 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 But it was not. It was not a happy time for me. I didn't spend it. No. I, in South Africa was not. A, not, not. Overall, I, by, by the time, and then I'll give you another interesting tidbit. The time I left, it was eighteen years that I that I spent, wow. in, spent in South Africa. Wow. So, so, so you did your university there then too? I did. I did a university, and then I did, uh, and then I went into broadcasting. Uh, I joined the what was then the South African Broadcasting Corporation, and I. Um, and that, funnily enough, was was fun. 
actually. It was fun, although it was a sort of government mouthpiece in many ways. Mm. I chose to do uh, to work in, in drama and, and I wrote plays and I directed plays and I did documentaries and things like that. And it was, Brandt, it was, it was, I'll tell you what was great fun, was actually dancing between, how can I put it, making, uh, trying to avoid the sort of stringent rules that they were creating. So, so you know, they'd say, for example, I remember doing, adapting a play called The Good Soldier, from a book called The Good Soldier Schweik. And The Good Soldier mm-hmm. Schweik, the abridged version, was banned in South Africa. It was banned. But the because of its because of its racist or not or lack of racist tones because of its <laughs> political yes it was promoting you know it yeah. was a, it was a historical novel set, set in the First World War and it was it yeah. was sort of promoting a bit of a bit of um, yeah, socialism or whatever but in a like, but they, they, Liber- they liberalism broad, yeah. broader sense yeah. for today's yeah. liberalism they banned it yeah, it wasn't accepted but, uh, but, it wasn't accepted yeah. but they hadn't banned the unabridged version. They neglected to ban the unabridged version. <laughs> so I took the unabridged Which was essentially version. the same message, right? It I mean, was exactly the same message, just a bit more in detail. <laughs> fun. Yeah, so were you living, obviously it was apartheid then, and you, you came yeah, in the depths of it. Yeah, absolutely, Mandela was still in prison. And yes. you lived there long enough, though. Did, were you, did you see the other end of that? Or, or were you out of South Africa when Mandela was released and apartheid was, you know... Well, and... that, but that was the other bit of, of, of stuff. I, I yeah. then became involved, uh, when I left the SABC, I became involved in uh, the anti-apartheid movement. Mm. I was arrested by the security police in, in Johannesburg and then wow. and detained in, uh, in security prison. I was then deported to, uh, to Britain Britain, um, right, because you held a British passport, I presume, right? Because, or, I had a British, I had a well. British passport. Yeah, yeah. It, it was, it was, it was quite in a in a funny sort of way. It was quite difficult because my the I had I had married illegally because it was illegal. Mixed marriages oh, between races were right. illegal. I had married a woman of um, of Indian and um, uh, Cape Malay uh, descent. Anyway, they wouldn't. The British wouldn't wouldn't accept my my uh, my then wife and uh, as you know to be able to come with me because they wouldn't accept the marriage until I uh, until I started stamping my feet from prison and yeah. uh, eventually yeah. they did and we arrived in Britain um, in nineteen eighty one eighty one it was wow. my my wife my child and a tape recorder and that was that- and. Uh, yeah, and a couple of hundred Australian dollars because I, I used to be a correspondent for the Australians. So you were what what age at that time? What let's 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 pick up the timeline from there because I want to get to the current stuff. I was in I was sort of yeah, late twenties, late twenties, early thirties. So so you'd worked for a bit and then and then you were you had the broadcasting background. You had your Australian dollars and your cassette tape. Yeah, Did yeah. you go to work in the news sector then right away? I mean, I then I had one person I knew, and he very kindly introduced yeah. me to somebody who said uh, in in a radio station, a local radio station, and in London, and he looking said, for somebody. <laughs> and I worked for them, and then I went from there into then I uh, from there I was freelance basically. I was freelance yeah. for about. Um, a year 
and I used to do, I used to do, I remember I used to do the four o'clock in the morning shift to midday, and then I used to go home. Then I used to pick up another shift from four o'clock at night, uh, four o'clock in the afternoon <laughs> to midnight. And this just to try and raise money because we had, we had nothing. Yeah. Um, of course. And, and your wife was obviously your, your children or child at that time? Child. We had one son. Yeah. Child at that time was young, right? So she was yeah. looking at And she yeah. couldn't, could she work? Did, I mean, did she have the capacity of it? Did, was she even she, able to work She could, she could work, right. but the problem was that, that my Both son was, child. um, yeah, was really very young. I mean, he was, he was yeah, one year old. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, so let's, let's draw a path now. So, so you've got this part-time job, you're working on crazy hours. Yeah. Now, was that part of the, you know, eventual Murdoch organization you joined or no, give us kind no. of the pathway to, no. to that, uh, that you part really want that. to get to the Murdoch path, don't you? I can, I can, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, you know, I want to be very, very cognizant of your time. You're very generous, <laughs> even given us the time today. But, you know, if you were charging me in your consulting hourly fee, I wouldn't be able to afford you. So I want to yeah, make sure we use good use of it. And, uh, I'm sure you, know, you would afford us on that path. Um, get us on that path. So I, I moved from then. I was then I got a job in in, in television. There was uh, breakfast television. Basically, was always starting up in Britain, uh, and it was the first time they had a franchise. So I got a job there. So that's what it was, refer, it was referred to. Wait, wait, wait! I have to ask you. It was referred to as breakfast television, or it wasn't like morning yeah. news or anything. It, it was wasn't yeah. what you watched. So it was entertainment. Was it entertainment? What, what did they show? It in was. The, it was based on Good Morning America. Okay, got it. So it was a news, you know, kind of but remember current days it was, or current issues. Yeah, that's all it did. It just did yeah. that current breakfast events. segment. Yeah. But of course, you had to run, you had to go and gather news. You had to gather stories, you know, throughout the day, and through, you know, throughout the week, whatever. So, so that was that one. I then, I um, very short story, sort of started off as a as a reporter, became a duty news editor, then was appointed foreign news editor. Then my boss then said to me, my boy, we're going to have to go and restructure this whole whole um, news uh, news network that we have because we weren't getting access to news at 4.30 in the morning. I mean, the Europeans and, and, and in fact, everybody, very few people were, were giving access to news outside those, those hours of broadcasting apart from the Americans. And um, so he sent me around the world. I think he was trying to get rid of me, but um, anyway, he sent me around the world. And I went, I went to 40, 42 countries in six months. Wow. Literally going in, talking to, talking to, to stringers, talking to, to uh, governments, arranging satellite and, and studios and access to news, et cetera, et cetera, and then moving on. So I just moved on and moved on and moved on. Um, when I came back and I set up that network, there was a couple of good things that happened in terms of we, we had some great successes with some big stories that had broken. I then became, he then said to me, um, Stephen, I'd like you to go and think about how we're going to restructure this organization and turn it into an organization that is really going to be, is going to make, is going to be better than the trade unions ever wanted. Um, it's going to be a, 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 an organization that everybody wants to work for. So he said, "Go away. Go and go and hold yourself up in a hotel bedroom for for as long as you like, and just restructure the organization." And I go did, and I and I went away. I have no idea why he did that. Why he picked me? He actually came up to me and said, "You know something about organization development, don't you?" And I said, "Yeah, yeah, I studied it." And he said, "Right, then um, why don't you go and do this?" Here's your new job. Here's a Here's new your project. new project. 
So I came back and I and basically what I did was I said, okay, what do we want to be? I started, and that was funny enough, a pattern that I've used ever since. What is this organization? What is its purpose? And what outcome does it want? And then working backwards, almost like back timing it and going, if that's what it wants to do, if that's what its purpose is, if that's what its vision is, then it needs to have these resources. It needs to have this sort of attitude, this have this sort of behavior, these sort of structures. So I filled in from the act. Came back, presented it to him. He said, let's go and talk to the board. We went and, and, and talked to the board. And they said, great, go ahead and um, put it forward. And he said, um, Stephen, you go and do it. I said, lovely. Yeah. I said, yeah. um, but you see, we had a couple of problems. I said, Bruce, I said, look, the, the, the issue here is that I'm going to be, you know, in implementing this new structure with people who were two rungs above me in seniority. Right. You know, I was foreign editor and there was the head of news and then there was a board member. I was supposed to implement that. So he said, so I said, so, you know, what title do I have? And by the way, just, you know, just as a, as a, by the way, do you mind? So he said, he said in that very Australian, because he was an Australian, a very well-known broadcaster in Australia, uh, who, who had set, had started running this organization in Britain. He said, Stephen, you are going to have no title and no increase in salary. So I said, how do you expect me to do this? He said, that's your first lesson in negotiation. <laughs> and that was it. Oh, wow. <laughs> so Now, that sounded a, a lot like Rupert Murdoch. So <laughs> you're going to have to get to the Murdoch part pretty quick here because I'm gnawing at the stop bit. It, stop it. At you're jumping bit. at the bit again. So um, I then, uh, uh, that, so for a year, I would literally, you know, negotiated, negotiated with each one put these new, because they were completely new practices that we were putting in, new processes completely. And at the end of the, and the end of the year, it was, it was absolutely successful. He then promoted me to managing editor. And, uh, and then, uh, and of course the salary increase, et cetera, et cetera. He then sent me off to Harvard to do uh, one of these executive, executive courses yeah. and yeah. said, you will take yeah. over as, as chief executive uh, when I, when it's time for me to go. Uh, he then, because the, the, the franchise for breakfast television or for morning television was one that was renewed every every 10 years. And it came up for renewal. And it was the way it was done. It was completely, completely idiotic. The way it was done, you did a closed bid, uh, financial bid for, 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 the, um, for the franchise. And we were, beaten, we were beaten on the bid. Um, we, we were outbid. And then um, Rupert said to me, right, um, not Rupert, Bruce said to me, right. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. We had a Freudian slip there. I think we're, I think we're definitely talking about Rupert here because that accent was so close. All right. I'll let you continue. I'll let you continue. No, so Bruce, it was a man called Bruce Gingell who was, was actually running this. And he was, he had, funny enough, was the first person ever to appear on television in, in, um, in Australia. Australia. Yeah. And um, anyway, so he said, oh, right, we, I don't want you to stay in a, in a dying organization. I want you to, uh, I'm going to send you off to, to Sky. Sky Television was basically the organization that um, Rupert Murdoch had formed by combining with the sort of the, the government approved British organization, right. which was called British right. BSB. He, and they, they merged it. Um, because they were both sort of going broke sort of thing. 
and he sent me there and where I started off as the, um, the, the COO uh, of the organization. Right. Right. Uh, second number two, and that was part of the same group then, or or how, or that was pre Murdoch purchase. No, that was Murdoch. PC. That was Murdoch. That was Murdoch. That was where I first came came into. But how did he send you there? I mean, I don't understand that. If he wasn't because Bruce sent me there because you know the other side of town sort of thing because he knew the uh, the CEO because they were both Australians. I, I mean, Australia's right, right. you know big country, yeah. small population. He certainly know he is. It was run by a man called Sam Chisholm, who reminded me of Jimmy Cagney. He was same height, and 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 really tough. I'm gonna. We're gonna fast forward to the end, and then we're gonna go back and fill in the middle. This is this okay. is the fun of podcasting. Fast forward, yeah. So fast forward. Now, my question is based on your understanding of the of the show Succession, and I'm assuming you've seen it or heard of it or I have, know the yeah, basic yeah, plot line. Yeah. So so here's my question with Rupert Murdoch has died within the last few days. Will art actually become reality with the passing of now, you know, the, the patriarch of an organization he ran for way too long, very similar to the succession. Yeah. And the whole thing just kind of falls apart when the old man dies. And, you know, will there be a Swedish, you know, savior that comes in? Will the kids just fight among themselves? Lachlan's been kind of running things for a while, but there's still two other kids that hold equal shares. I mean, is this going to stay together or is it going to just explode apart? Because, I mean, with the lawsuits, the 780 million, you know, uh, Dominion lawsuit, there's another billion coming down. I mean, there's rumors that Murdoch caught, oh, we'll pay them off. Give them 50 million, you know, and, yeah. and that stuff has just been beating them down. But I don't think it will collapse. I do think that Lachlan uh, has been in the business a long time. Um, and I think within that, Within that, um, the structures of, framework, yeah. of of News Corp and and um, particularly News Corp and, and 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 news, he will have learnt a lot. I don't. I mean, James has 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 distanced himself, and I think he will yeah. probably remain distant. Uh, but he still I has voting that. rights, just like the three kids. <laughs> six yeah, session. yeah, yeah. Both those yeah. those three kids, they own. You know, they're going to own yeah. the majority of it. I don't. I didn't detect. I mean, I haven't been. I haven't been in touch for a long, long time. But I, I don't detect that sort of really hungry, stupid hungry, if I can call it, yeah. um, ambition in those in those those three. I think they are doing. I mean, they're all doing very well in their own right, and 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 they're all they're all going and and staking out their own path. Sure. I I don't think that it will explode. I really don't, yeah. and I don't think they'll probably sell off. They'll sell off a few, you know, near worthless assets, and you know, show the market that they can shed and people and expenses, and then you know, keep the juicy bits and keep it running for a while. But, but, you know, that if that happens, then, you know, someone's going to come along and go, you know, all right, you're mine. I, I'm going to buy you. <laughs> you kids, you go away, take your billion each and, you know, <laughs> yeah, hit you've, the road. You've got to be very careful, haven't you, when you're starting to shed, because if you're starting to shed, if you shed too much, yeah. you yeah. start getting vulnerable because uh, people say, ah, now this is manageable. I can go and snaffle this quickly. Um, but I think, and it and it also depends, of course, at the end of the day, whether those three will vote together. Because remember, they have they have the uh, the vote. In fact, the four. 
Thank you for your, your, your measured response, Stephen. I think that, you know, as a professor, uh, <laughs> doctorate, that's probably the best <laughs> answer, but we will see over time. We'll have to have a, you know, a year from now, let's get together and yeah. at least have a beer over to talking what happened with clocks. Now I want to rewind, but I want to ask the question a little differently. And, and first of all, how many years were you kind of CEO, senior executive in the Murdoch organization? Because you were in I sales. was COO first and then then moved yep. into the CEO position. I wasn't there long, actually. I was there for one, right. two, four years, maybe one year as a CEO. But then was it the next was, was the next one you went to also Murdoch or did you? Yeah. Did yeah, you exit I went to, them after that? So if you look at the total Murdoch years, give me that. What was that? 10, that was 10, about 10, four 20? years. That was about four years. About four years of talk. Yeah. Murdoch yeah. Talks, right. So, so went on to other CEO positions, did a number of things, obviously continued the media. I think we've counted four or five. I lost count. But, but if you were now to go back and say, okay, you know, looking at those combined years of, of, of your CEO, of your leadership, big organizations, large, publicly traded, privately owned, pre going into your own practice. And we want to talk about that next. Yeah. So I don't want to keep that as a side, keep that out of the equation. What would be some of, you know, give, give us kind of three or five of the key leadership lessons you've learned. You know, you think about those years, how you got successful, how you moved around, how you kind of leveraged what you had and did well and, you know, had the attraction to go on and take on new positions. What, what are the three or four of the things that you think really made a difference in how you led people? You've asked almost two, two different questions here. I think, what have I learned about leadership? What I learned about leadership there, I think, is a couple of things, is that leadership is a job. It's not a role. Anybody talks about acting, you know, what's your leadership style, what's this, it, it is wrong in my opinion. And, and I went in there thinking there is a leadership style. I need to adopt a leadership style. I, and I needed to remember very sharply that leadership you're doing a job you're doing and the job is to bring your organization your entire organization as far as it can closer to its its uh its outcomes its goals its vision it that's your job to bring it closer and closer every day it's in, it's, a, it's a bit like you know, here's a, here's a stupid analogy. It's a bit like playing golf. You just got to get the ball closer to the hole every time. <laughs> closer you get, the better opportunity. That's to win. exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's one. It's a job. It's not a style. Don't play games. And I remember, in fact, this guy, the, the guy who was my CEO at Sky, saying to me one day, "Barton, stop acting as a leader. Do the job." He was absolutely mm. correct. Just do sage the job. wisdom. Yeah. yeah. So you know what else. The other, the other thing I think is in, in terms of in terms of leaders is that you have to. I, what I learned as well is that you your ego. In order to be a good leader, your ego needs to really diminish. Stop. You know, don't. You're not doing. If you're doing it for yourself, if you're doing it, and a lot of a, a lot of CEOs tend to do this. They see their own success and they think that's the success of, organ of the organization. It's not. So you, if, if you're going to do the job of CEO, your ego has got to take second place. It doesn't mean your power takes second place. It doesn't mean your authority. It doesn't mean your vision, but you're certainly your ego needs to take second place because if you don't leave it at the door, leave it at the door. Yeah, don't, you don't have to be yeah. the smartest guy in the room, hire smart people, be humble, admit yeah. yeah. your stakes, be vulnerable. Yeah. yeah. And the thing I think that, that, that so many people still don't do because they find it, they find it really threatening is you're not just, you know, it's not a case of just delegating. 
and just delegating and put in inverted commas. You've actually got to give power and authority and to, to other people and make sure that you're you're learning from them as well. So that's, you know, I, I talk about that and I, I call it, which is my absolute passion, partnering leadership. Your leader, mm. your, your, your people around you are your partners and they learn from you, you learn from them, you work things together, you never do things alone. You know, you may have to take a decision on your own at the end, but you bake it with a hell of a lot of people. Because if you don't, so true. you're going to have a problem. You're going to have a huge problem. And, and, and I fell into those traps many times. Um, thank, thank God I got, came out of them. But those are the, those are the, the things that, I, that I, I needed to learn. It's, you know, you, it's a job. You, you have to work with other people. You have to give them power uh, and, and leave your ego at the door. Just take it away. Don't, don't even don't bother. You wrote a book. Uh, it came out about a year ago. Um, was it based on your leadership? T tell us a little bit about it. Give us this title, you know, some of the key tenets of what you were, what you have communicated there. I thought you'd never ask. So, um, yeah, the, the, the title is called How Successful Leaders Do Business With Their World. Uh, and, and that was the title that the publishers decided was good because it actually is, it gives the impression that it's about, you know, business leaders only. It's not. But the backstory is quite interesting because when I came out of, of, um, of, of running companies, I, I basically wanted to know how come certain leaders were able to, to take their entire organization forward and they would, they would literally, they refused to compromise uh, and, and work only for the shareholder and what have you. And others would be literally agents for the shareholders, agents for, you know, for the, for the top executives, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I, I interviewed, I went and, and got a group of, of two, three, and four-star generals. And so they were really big guys. Uh, a, a group of, of global and international CEOs from profit and non-profit organizations and very top academics, uh, again, in, in the US in, uh, in, and in Europe and the UK. And I basically started off by saying, and, and by the way, I interviewed them all anonymously because I didn't want them defending themselves. So they said, so we insisted they were all anonymous. So they didn't have anything to lose as it were, but they were household names. And I said to them, I started off by saying, Tell me how you learned, how you experienced your learning when you, were, when you were climbing to the top, when you got to the top. They then started throwing literally open windows to me, basically saying, when I was a kid, I used to do this. When I was a kid, I used to do that. When I was a child, I was known as. And I thought, these guys really want to tell me something about their childhood. I've no idea why, but why? I have no idea why, but here we are. And what we discovered at the end of this research was that the way they, what they were telling me was that the way they learned how to exercise their power and authority as leaders, they learned way back as children. It was the case of, if you like, of the child when it's exploring its space, it's exploring how to, to, to create its identity, to make something of itself right as, right as a kid, it encounters resistance, it encounters various um, dynamics, if you like, with its parents, with its brothers and sisters, with its teachers, and it learns about 
it creates a foundational assumption about its relationship with the world in power terms. It knows it can do certain things and certain things it can't do. The ones who were really, really successful, the most objectively successful adults, if you like, were ones that formed an, a basic assumption that the relationship between them and their world, their world, not the world, their world, was basically pretty balanced. And then they could, one said to me, I can do business. I could do business with the world. I don't compete against it. The world and I are partners. We work together. You know, I will, I will use people and, and they will use me and we'll, we'll have a relationship and we'll share knowledge, etc., etc. They, they were completely balanced between themselves and the world. If you're out of that balance, you tend to compete. And that basically becomes quite a waste of time. So what that then ended up with was this book, um, which, which I wrote, which basically talks about how these objectively successful, successful leaders formed what I called a partnering stance to the world. They, their basic assumption was they and the world were partners, and the people who were outside that sweet spot depending how far down the scale you were, were basically in a form of oppositional stance. And of course, the ones who are really in opposition, who really fear the world or think the world is threatening to them, inevitably become toxic because they're fighting, they're, 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 they're ready to fight, whatever happens. They're ready to fight, you know, and mostly funny enough, they fight within the camp, not outside. They're much more vicious with their own people than they are with their competitors. Because Fascinating. Fascinating. You can see the pattern where that started from. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, listen, I, I feel like you've promoted my podcast, Stephen, not that I've promoted your book, because, you know, <laughs> as in this podcast and in others, we always start about a third of it getting that, you know, key foundation. I have to tell you, I agree yeah. with you a thousand percent. The folks that figured out that partnering had a good friend, you know, kind of symbiotically right? Yeah. Developed their entrepreneurial skills and or their leadership skills at a young age had a much more higher propensity for success. Yeah. Listen, I want to fast forward now. You, you've been consulting, you've been on your own now. G give us a background, name of your company, you know, kind of what's your practice? What are you doing today? How have you kind of combined all this wonderful work, not only in your CEO positions, the research behind obviously the book that you've written, but what are you doing today? Tell us about your practice. Well, my practice is, is called, you know, very imaginative, Stephen Barton Coaching. And I've been in the business, in that business for two decades, 20 years, about, when I left. Uh, and what I do is I work mostly with, with board-level uh, leaders in the C-suite, either on an individual basis or on, uh, on a team basis. And I also, and this is probably my, my favorite piece of work, I also basically align cultures of organization with their, with their strategies. Because my, the premise basically is if, if you want an organization to succeed, it's not, it's, the strategy has to be there, but the strategy and the culture have to be totally aligned. Behaviors, behaviors, processes, assumptions, all those things have to be aligned with the strategy. Otherwise, it ain't going to work. And, and I, you know, I remember during the, the, the financial crisis when I went into 
certain financial institutions and found carved on their walls things like team spirit and integrity and it was totally contradictory to what they were doing. Yeah, you didn't see um, it. Yeah, he, he, he simply didn't see it, and of course they collapsed because there was nothing to, to step up on. But so that's the the, the 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 a lot of the stuff that I do there. And and, um, and who do you serve? Do you have a specific industry, middle market, enterprise, SME? You know, where, where what's your focus, your sector focus, well, if at all? Are you agnostic? It depends. If if I'm doing the total the total organization work, if you like the engagement and culture work, then those would be typically small to medium size. So up to you know up to I don't know. Um, 50,000 people um, mm-hmm. down to down to uh, a couple of thousand. If I'm doing, when I'm doing the individual work with leaders, if I'm doing coaching and, and mentoring leaders, then some of them are, are from very large organizations, from very, very right. large corporate, but it's all corporate. Um, and you probably started with media. That's where you had a lot of your sector connections, it, but have it, you broadened it, since there? Are you... Are you doing I, a lot you know of others, or, or did you not, or did you just walk away from broadcasting entirely? I mean, I did no. that with search. I came out of consumer products and entertainment. I didn't do a consumer products or an entertainment search for lap, after three years of business. It was just, you know, that's the way it developed. Here's, here's the thing. Media in those days, and I suspect the same now, didn't want any coaching done. Didn't want any work done. <laughs> the egos said, were too big in the room. <laughs> yeah. They said, what do you mean? What do you mean? What do we don't need yeah. you to coach us? Don't need, don't need you. <laughs> I got... I got into the, the, my, my, my strongest clients at the beginning uh, were financial institutions and I had nothing to do with financial institutions, but they were the one that said, could you come and coach us? Of course. They needed the help. Yeah. Stephen, we're just about out of time. It's been a wonderfully enjoyable conversation. We've covered so much territory, but we always ask one last question. I'm going to give it a little bit of a twist. This podcast has been a twist. I'm going to do a little bit of a twist at the end. Because you've given us kind of your top leadership lessons. And, you know, if I ask you this question in our normal fashion, you just say, well, I just told you that earlier, Brand, so I'm not going to ask that. But what I'm going to ask you, you arrived in the shores of the UK. You were, you know, obviously a Tanzanian, born and raised, 13 years old. Man, you were fully formed, you know, went for a long period of time in a country that was very repressed and fought against that, saw the change that came. And we didn't get a chance to talk about that. We'll have to find another podcast time for it. But you arrived at the shores of the UK with a British passport, never having lived in the country at all, in your late 20s, early 30s. If you had to go back to that younger self, if you had to go back to that man that arrived with a wife and a very small child and, and tell that person, hey, you know, here's two or three things that I really think you should know. That's going to save you a lot of pain and suffering or, you know, really help advance your you know, trajectory over the next 40, 50 years. What, what would you tell that younger self? That's that's quite a difficult question because you know the thing that drove me to succeed was fear, fear that I was going to be broke, fear that I was never going to you know never going to reestablish myself, and that drove me and it drove me to succeed uh, very quickly in, in in the UK. Right. What I would probably say to that person is, don't panic. Don't panic. Don't drive yourself by fear. Think about what is going to give you joy. And what will give you joy will also bring you enough money to live on. And I think that, and I keep on saying that to certainly to, to younger clients of mine, 
when they when they're saying, "Oh, but I need to do this because um, I'm going to, you know, I need to make money," is find the place that gives you joy, the work that gives you joy, and the money will come. Dr. Stephen Barden, thank you, thank you so very much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Thank you, Brent. Thank you very much. Good to talk to you. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.